Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Let's get into the show. Hey, welcome everybody to another episode of On The Whistle. I am Gary, your host, and today I have a very exciting guest by the name of Mary Mazio. Did I pronounce that correctly, Mary? I should have asked you in the the pre-interview. Yes. Mary Mazio, Mary Mazio, you know, Mazio, Mazio, I'll take it. Tomato or tomato? Precisely. Um, Mary is an American documentary filmmaker. She has written, directed, and produced a variety of fascinating films, documentaries, ranging from Title IX issues to robotics team, uh, robotic team competition to entrepreneurial youth competitions to her latest work about uh, an inner city rowing team from the difficult side of Chicago that uh, came together to overcome a variety of obstacles and difficulties. And uh, all of the films have an underlying current or theme, which is overcoming difficult blocks or obstructions in people's lives, uh, focusing on underserved and Each story has a unique breakthrough, and each of those breakthroughs, in my opinion, comes through this power or being collected in what I would refer to as a team. And uh, certainly at Squad Locker and On The Whistle, we love teams, and and that's our hashtag, and we we talk about it all the time. And so, Mary, excited to have you, and and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Gary. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So before we get into the films, a little bit about you. You're an Olympic athlete, and you're our second Olympic athlete on the show. We had a female Olympic hockey player. Oh, cool. Which one? Erica Lawler. Okay, cool. So so tell me a little bit about, like, rowing. How did you end up becoming a rower? And, you know, what was your attraction to rowing? And how did that form some of your early experiences – that relate to some of the work that you're doing today? Oh, God. Um, So I actually picked up rowing in college. I went to Mount Holyoke College. And um, prior to Mount Holyoke, my athletic successes were far and few between. I was cut from almost every high school team. I had no eye-hand coordination. So I played a season on JV softball. I um, was on the varsity track team, but through the javelin and I was a cheerleader. Right. And so I literally had no, no conception of where a ball could be. I shut my eyes. Anyways, I get to Mount Holyoke and uh, all women 
And I'm approached by this sort of short, you know, mustached man. And he said, boy, you know, you have really big legs. And <laughs> I remember thinking, uh-huh, yeah, what of it? And he said, I'm the rowing coach for Mount Holyoke Rowing. Like, I'm trying to get, you know, tall women down to the boathouse. And like, would you come down? And so I show up uh, day one, and there's like literally 150 people there for probably 24 spots, right? So, and he says, okay, we're going to have you all run. And we're going to have you run around the lake, barely a mile. And I take off and I am like DFL, right? Maybe second to last. And I remember he said, okay, you few, like, don't bother coming back. And I cannot to this day remember what I said, but I was like, mm, maybe can I come back one more day? Like, give this one more try. And for whatever reason, he said yes. And, you know, by the end of the week, rowing is such a sport, right, where you get up in, at five in the morning and you have to run in the dark to a boathouse 300, you know, three miles away. And um, by the end of the first week, the 150 had winnowed down to like, you know, four. <laughs> and so and so I literally became a member of the team by default. I was like one of the only ones left standing. And how lucky for me, right? Yeah, it changed your life. Yeah, completely. So, so what was the journey from going from there to becoming an Olympic athlete? I mean, that's, oh that's quite a leap. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm at a D3 school. We, you know, where we're, we're losing most of our races, of course, right? And um, however, it was a new sport. I obviously had some genetic traits, right, that were helpful, but um, it was not eye-hand coordination anymore. And it's one thing to be sort of a big fish in a little pond, right? And then to actually start training after college for the U.S. team. I was cut a number of times, right? Oh, you're too short. You know, you're too um, not strong enough. So, you know, I sort of look back and I think, boy, why didn't I quit? Right. Because that's sort of, you know, there's the exercise between acknowledging that you may not have what it takes to do something and channeling, you know, your energy into something else that may be more productive or let's see if we can really make this go. And I was sort of young enough and carefree enough where I was like, you know, let's just let's give this another shot. So I think in the course of doing that, when you are somebody who is not favored in the system, mm. right, um, I had not gone, gone to a rowing powerhouse. I was not a physical specimen if by any shot. Right. And, um, to be able to sort of swim uphill and fight upstream and, and figure out, do I belong was a really, you know, I, I learned that people are capable of so much more than they might think they are. Uh, you know, I was listening to a podcast and there's this quote by you, and I think it's your coach who gives you a jacket to try on, uh, a Russian oh, jacket. God, I forgot about that. Yes. And, um, Chris, and, yeah. and there's this really interesting interplay there because the coach says to you something like, and I'm paraphrasing and help me, help me define this better. Hey, try this on. This is a special thing. And then you receive the special thing. And then this person says to you, as they exchange this thing of value and give you this thing of value, which you can tell is precious, they say to you, hey, I, th I think you're special. I think you've got a little bit more talent than you even may even know. And my sense is that made you feel optimistic and powerful. You know, you were talking before about mentorship, right? And she was an assistant coach. Her name was Chris Thorsness. She was a two-time Olympian. And she had this East German jacket back when there was an East Germany. And I remember she said, try it on, right? And you try it on. And all of a sudden, 
you're, she's real, right? She's right next to me. She did it. That encouragement, which I had never really heard before in, in, a, in an athletic, you know, setting, Hey, you should really go for this. I think, you know, you could, you could have a shot to have that ratified, right? You, it, it, as you said before, you may have more talent than you think. That's a huge deal. And, yeah. and it changed and, you. And, and generous, right? Because to have that sort of mentorship behind you, that's really what, when I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for this. Like what, why not? Right. What, what do you have to lose? Right. Right. It's an interesting uh, backdrop to more of you from there. You compete in the Olympics and you go to law school and you find, and you find yourself an attorney and you start to describe that you have these golden handcuffs. And what do you mean by golden handcuffs? If, if I'm a listener, what does that mean to me? So for me, I was someone who did not grow up with money, right? It's sort of we're bouncing checks at the end of every school season from my job, right? Work study. <laughs> like it was a, ch- I'm very lucky to have seen the inside of a college, right? Um, and I think to come out, start making money, you know, I'm working for a large law firm downtown, right? And I'm starting to pay off my, my extraordinary school debt, but I'm not taking the tea, I'm driving. You know, I get a latte on the way and I'm living this sort of extraordinary life, by the way, with a group of people that are so intellectual challenging, right? So every day you're working with smart people, which mm. is just how lucky was I? And I felt as if over time that, you know, you have a certain, boy, it was nice to have money, right? And to stay there and and be bound by that money, I think is why people, you know, sometimes stay in positions for very long periods of time, right? They find it financially rewarding and otherwise. And, And at that point, I remember saying to my husband, I said, you know, I've been the product of so much largesse. Now, I would say to you, I've been the product of so much privilege, right? That was gifts given to me big and small that you and I know would not have been bestowed on me had my skin been a different color, right? But how lucky was I to have people sticking hands down and elevating me to where I could actually lead a productive life. And now it's incumbent upon me to do something for somebody else. And I felt like at the time, like, yes, I was doing pro bono legal work, right? And I was representing tenants, but I really felt like I was seeing the same story, but a different face, every case. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is not sustainable. I mean, I was really coming up front with structural racism, right? What what is in today's parlance, structural racism. And was I helping a family here and there? You betcha. But was I doing anything from a structural standpoint, from from a systemic standpoint? No. And it was at that point when I said, you know, I'm living this amazing latte life, but who am I serving other than myself, right? And and yes, I'm serving indigent tenants from time to time, but I felt like I was like stuck in mud a little bit, right? I'm not really doing anything. And that's when I remember saying to my husband, I'm, I'm thinking about politics or film school. And, and partly because I was always so moved by the power of film. And at that point, 
you know, listen, I was an athlete, practically a choir girl, right? And I'm like, ooh, was there any recreational drug use in my past that's going to come back to haunt me? I was like, what other skeletons are in my closet, right? Yeah. And uh, okay, we'll, we'll go to film school. So um, <laughs> I I moved away from the idea of politics and and went to film school, actually, while I was practicing law, completely on the sly, nobody knew. And um, and that's um, that's where it started. Yeah, and that sort broke of- you free of the golden handcuffs. Is that fair to Am say? I free? No, no, meaning that the access to film school was what broke, was unlocked the golden handcuffs for you in a way. Yes, although I'm not so, I, I'd say I don't embrace risk in such a way where I completely gave up my law practice, right? And I, I was tempted to, and I remember saying to my husband at the time, and my husband was like, let's think about this, you know, let's touch this risk. And, um, and he's like, what happens if you become a partner? And where does your influence go, right? Like, of course it grows. And what contacts can you make? So instead of, say, going to film school full time, I went part time and I became a partner at the same time I go to film school. And as it turned out, my first investors were clients or friends of clients. Right. And and the reason they invested was not because I was some hot, hot shit, you know, um, filmmaker, because I didn't know what I was doing. But okay, she didn't fail out of her law firm. She became a partner. So she's good at something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had this modicum of credibility that I could then sort of, you know, pedal off into something else. And so, so I think those handcuffs were broken in two ways. A, when, I, when, when um, we paid back my student loans, right? And then secondarily, after I made my very first film, because I was still a lawyer at that point, right? I had not completely stepped away. And seeing the impact it had, seeing the success that it had, I took a deep breath and said, okay, um, maybe I can quit my day job. And I was approached by, in fact, it was ESPN back then. And they said, hey, do you want to do another? And I was like, okay, I'm just going to hold my breath and take a leap. And that's really, be, you know, what I was doing was entrepreneurial. Right. Yeah. I was with a big firm with a steady paycheck anymore. And that's a scary thing, right? especially for somebody who hasn't come from money. On the other hand, you know, life is short. Right. And we didn't have we had babies. Right. So college tuition was a uh, far away. And um, if any time was the time to take a leap, that was it. And honestly, I'm so glad that I did, because I can't think of a more rewarding path that I never intended to make documentary films, by the way. I always thought I'd like have a chair with, you know, Mazio on the back and, you know, have a cool mm-hmm. leather jacket and be writing and directing. And little did I know like the impediments for a, a life like that. Right. And so I had no idea that I would end up making documentaries. And uh, honestly, I, I feel so fortunate that the work that we've done has had not just tremendous impact, but that I have been able to learn and grow through each one of those projects. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful backdrop to getting into the film side of of uh, your history, and and I really want to eventually end up at a most beautiful thing, having watched it recently, and had such profound appreciation for the film, the content of the film, the quality of the film, the story of the film. It's such a, it is in itself a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> I, I really believe that it, it's it's a tremendous film. You know, you've taken on a lot of topics in these films. You take on immigration with the Apple Pushers. You take on Underwater Dreams, which is this go-nowhere group of kids who take on MIT engineers in an underwater robotics contest, which is 
an awesome, awesome piece. Um, and they're and, and they undocumented, right? Yeah, right. And by the way, the Obama administration said this should be in every classroom, this film, and got tremendous accolades. So to get to a most beautiful thing, which is your most recent project, just giving our listeners a little backdrop and, and trying to relate it to On the Whistle and the thread that we try and weave, which is how does sports play a role in preparing young people to fulfill their full potential? What is the role of a coach or a leader or a mentor with that group? How does failure play as a key ingredient for success? Right. All of those things that we they're all recurring themes and the people I speak to on this show. I'll tell you, um, a most beautiful thing has every one of those ingredients put together in a documentary paella, if you will, of food or entree, which creates a most beautiful dish. If you could make an analogy, this is a story about the west side of Chicago and young black men who are exposed to routine violence, death, and um, misfortune at such a level that during the film, neurologists explain the permanent impact on a young brain from having been exposed to so much negativity that they actually compare it to PTSD of a soldier. And this is a story following a group of young men who, and there is comedy in this movie, there is tragedy in this movie, but just to give the listeners a backdrop, and I'm not gonna reveal what happens, but to give them a backdrop, there's a bunch of young black guys in a school who effectively go to walk to school every day, avoiding being killed in certain circumstances, trying to navigate these power structures of which gang do I join up with so that I can get to school and not have my sister, brother, or mother physically threatened. The school itself has no, at this point in time, um, requirements for attendance. One of the characters or one of the kids in the story says, I didn't go to school for 80 days, some massive amount of days. And the school counselor grabs him one day and says, hey, if you don't come here, by the way, you're going to die. These boys share with us as viewers the frequency of murder of their own peers. I saw it at age 10. I saw my friend get killed at age 11. I saw my friend get killed at age nine. This is a backdrop in a section of America. I mean, quite frankly, it's so appalling and saddening for me. But at the same time, there's such a massive silver lining in this film and in this group of young men as a result of this thing called sport. And in walks this, not snotty, but privileged two white guys who feel, hey, I can fix this. I can improve this. And quite frankly, from what I can tell, really good intentions. And if I were to criticize your film, I would say maybe didn't get enough attention in the film as a fair criticism. But uh, I would say as a criticism from um, a white viewer, could uh, be. Could be. we yeah. have been, oh yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're all so used to that trope of white savior comes into black neighborhood. And that was not this story, right? Got this it. is 
And so that was actually very intentional. Um, and I had long conversations with Arshay about what is this story? What are, what does he want it to say? Yeah, it's and great that you that, picked Arshay because he's the star. He's amazing. He's, amazing. he's an amazing man. He's an amazing boy and he becomes an amazing man. So just a little bit more on, on the story. In walks this gentleman and he drops a, a rowing shell into uh, an auditorium <laughs> And these these black kids are like, there's a boat in the room. And and they are like, and he's trying to get kids to sign up. So the first thing he does is he lures them with pizza, which I think is just hilarious and and clever. And they're like, well, I like pizza, so I'm gonna sign up. And then they sign up and they understand that, you know, he's gonna try and teach them how to become a rower and to compete. And there's this hilarious piece where they get near the water and they're terrified to go actually sit in the boat. And they're like, you know, black guys don't swim and we don't know how to swim. And one of them says to him, guys, you guys are dealing with gunshots every day. You're afraid to go sit in a boat on the water, which I thought was so funny because I find those young men so brave and so courageous by default. And here they are completely overwhelmed with fear on something that would be for anyone else, just a camp activity. Right. 100%. Literally an after school camp activity. Right. So how did you pull this story together? And what do you want people as we go through the journey of this film? What do you want people to think about or to start to think about as we share the story? So I'm going to take that backwards, if that's okay, Gary. And that is that I think what we're seeing the message of Arshe Cooper in terms of creating empathy for how stakeholders and residents in places like the west side of Chicago or Compton or Harlem, the structural impediments, the long, you know, hundreds of years of racist policies, what these young people have to navigate as a result of that kind of blight and neglect by the greater we and yet how extraordinarily talented they are, right? I mean, I think the film really st stands for the proposition that uh, talent is equally distributed, right? It's access and opportunity that are not. And you get to see these young men, you understand the trauma that they're navigating in their own neighborhoods. And this idea of affiliating with a gang is not an active choice. It is a way to survive. And so, you know, at this time in history that we find ourselves, what's amazing is we are seeing audiences watch the film, particularly audiences that have lived in the world of privilege, that have not stepped or experienced a neighborhood like the West Side. And it's like a light, a light bulb goes off, like, oh, now I really understand the events of the past 12 months. And so the fact that the film is unlocking greater empathy, I mean, we're doing event, you know, events with Pepsi, there's the most beautiful thing, shoe. Like we're seeing great cultural mm -hmm. pickup, but then we're doing events with JP Morgan and Vanguard and Target and on and on and on, right? Around these conversations that really um, is kind of focused on the whistle, right? Which is how do we think about social change? What has to be done? And not only that, but what is the role of privilege? And to be able to tell the story through the lens of sport there is no more sport that is privileged than the sport of rowing, right? You cannot get, okay, maybe polo, 
<laughs> you know, but but rowing and, and to see this ecosystem, you know, those that hold the levers of power in this country often went to HBS, maybe they, you know, went to Broughton or, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Many of them, mostly white men, have actually held an oar in their life. So for these captains of industry to watch this film and embrace the message of Arshe Cooper is triply profound because it's not just access as it relates to sport, it's access as it relates to our kind of humanity. And so for us, I think Arshe and I have been blown away by the reception the film has had and honestly, the traction that is, um, we can't keep up with incoming demand. And, you know, we originally started pre-COVID, right? We were going to debut at South by Southwest and there was a lot of buzz and COVID hits. Well, COVID serves to expose the disparity, of course, right? Between the haves and the have-nots in very stark ways. And we were going to open theatrically in 20 cities with our friends at AMC. So AMC was closed and they were gonna open then they're gonna close. So we kept pivoting with AMC. George Floyd gets murdered and Arshay calls me. He's like, Mary, the time for this film is now. And he could not have been more right, right? So we decided not to wait till 2021. We pivoted with our partners at um, NBC Universal and Peacock and Comcast and debuted first there with a series of kind of special events around the country with members of Congress. And then we rolled on to Amazon uh, later this year, actually fairly recently. And so we're just seeing, again, extraordinary, I think empathy is the right, thing. And Arche, you know, like Arche, wherever Arche goes, you've got people coming together that have no business coming together. And at the end of the day, that's what sports does. It brings people together and unites them in, in sort of a singular goal. And certainly, I mean, not to be a cliche, but you get into a boat, you cannot move unless you are in sync with the person in front of you and the person behind you. You cannot move forward unless you are together. And that's the metaphor, right? And so in the film, I'll mention this, and you haven't mentioned this, Gary, but Arshay invites members of the Chicago Police Department into the boat, into the boathouse, into the rowing tanks. And um, I remember when he called me um, and he said, hey, I'm thinking, thinking about this. The hair went up on the back of my neck. I'm like, you're gonna do what? Do the guys know, right? You've got three of the guys have been in gangs, two have been incarcerated, one is on house arrest. And with toxicity of law enforcement and police brutality and misconduct in these neighborhoods, right? And Arshay said to me, he's like, Mary, these cops, they need to know our name. They need to know who we are. So when they come into our neighborhood, there is greater understanding. And to his credit, he, he invited the Chicago, and it was it was life changing, not just for the guys, right? But but for the cops. After the murder of George Floyd, Arche had a text chain with the cops and and his teammates in the boat, and saying this has to stop. And one of the cops posted Black Black Lives Matter on his Instagram feed. Mm, nice. I mean, you don't you don't see police with any sort of solidarity with communities of color and to see that happen. And Arshay said to me, you know, Mary, it's one cop at a time. Yeah, it really is. The um, early in the film, there's, there's two stark contrasts 
one of the characters is in his car touring his old neighborhood and he drives by what is the largest municipal white government building literally plopped down in the in a lousy neighborhood a, a, a neighborhood that looks visually blighted and it's a juvenile incarceration building and he calls it the big white mansion and he said you were either in it or avoiding getting in it as a kid everybody can't tell you how many of my friends went through there it's so sad but it's so resource rich meaning look at all that money that went to building this massive building to in essence limit or control right now right in that same moment we start to get the introduction of the idea of going rowing and a team and so now these characters have choices right they have we can see their journey is are you going to go to the big white mansion yep or are you going to figure out a way to avoid it and get out of here alive and what gets introduced to these young men is this opportunity called team and one of the characters says you know why did you choose a gang you want to feel like you belong you want to feel protected then they start to form as a team and then they start to reflect on the fact that they belong and they're a family and they feel protected and for me as a viewer and a believer in team I see it, I saw it as the great antidote for the danger that these young children were being exposed to. And for me, it was so deeply gratifying to watch their journey down this process of sport and team. And it gave them a sense of belonging. It gave them peace. Uh, one of the characters says, it brightened my life. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah. Um, you know, it brightened my life. The water gave us peace. It was a transformation through an accomplishment. One of the young men said, it just felt so good. So as a viewer, you are so gratified by watching these young men up against everything, including the federal and state government who were building, in essence, infrastructure to capture and control mm -hmm. at an undeniable budget rate, right? And then in walks this empty boat that can hold anywhere from four to eight kids at a time. And all of a sudden, everything's changing. Mm -hmm. The world's changing, their opportunities changing, their mindset's changing, right? And so for a guy who believes in team and believes in the power of coach and community, I was so excited to see what happens. But before our listeners get too excited, there's some other super special ingredients. And that is our Shea. And to watch this film, and, and hey, if you've ever been on a team, every team has an Arche. Some of them are quiet, some of them are loud, but they're just called leaders. Yep. And this Arche, if I could hire this kid for my business, I would take him today. I look for Arches in every moment of my career. Everybody mm -hmm. wants an Arche on their team. Arche had a friend on this in this boat crew called Alvin. And Alvin effectively was being threatened, picked on, and harassed through gangs around his route to school, if you will. And his sister was being threatened. And Arce said, well, don't worry about it. I'll just walk, I'll show up every morning and, and walk with you. And two is bigger than one. 
and Alvin explains to us that Arshay's big head was outside the window every morning waiting to walk him to school. Uh, And Arshay had to get up earlier and Arshay had to do it not one day in a row, not five days in a row, but every day in a row. And Arshay made it exceptional and he made a commitment and he stuck to his commitment. And when you look at team and you look at sport, you got a good coach in this ingredient and then you've got effectively a captain. And this Arshe brings this thing together and he is incredible. Tell me about your relationship with Arshe and what factor does he play in the success of this team? He, he, he is a success. I mean, this is Arshe's movie. I'm along for the ride, right? And I view my job as a filmmaker to build the risers, right? Build the acoustics. And if a voice like Arshe's, who is an underrepresented voice, right? If I can sort of like amplify his voice, that's my job. It's not my story, not my my version of the story. And I think, you know, when Arshe called me to start this process off, it's hilarious because he had been tweeting to Will Smith, Ava DuVarnay, Brad Pitt, Steven Spielberg. And, and he said, you know, Mary, you're the only one that picked up my call. And as you can imagine, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around cultural appropriation, right? Um, now, I've done a lot of work with underserved communities over the course of my career. And I said to him, I'm like, Arche, listen, I love this story. And he's like, Mary, I, nobody else can tell it. First of all, you know, he's like, you're an Olympic rower. Nobody else can get a rowing story, right? The way this needs to be told. And he said, I've looked at all your other work. Like, let's do this. And I remember having a conversation with someone who was very senior at the NAACP because it's now more pitched, this conversation. And I said, you know, I want to be very, very careful. And he's like, Mary, if you have a set of skills and somebody asks for your help, why would you ever turn them down? Right. And at the end of the day, that that was such a blessing that he said it that way and phrased it that way. And I was like, that's exactly right. I'm answering Arche's call and let's go do this. And Arche and I have been tied at the hip. hip. I mean, he is just, he makes you better. Right. Mm. And that's what leaders do. And if you think about what he's been through as a person, he is so kind so thoughtful in terms of educating others, particularly around racism, and and he phrases it in a way where it's, people don't get defensive, Mm -hmm. but they truly lean in and understand. And that, that along with his ability to bring people together that have, again, no business coming together is just an extraordinary gift. And boy, do we need more leaders like that now. Seeing what we saw on the steps of the Capitol, that is the opposite of what Arshe Cooper would stand for. And frankly, it should be the opposite of what we as a country need to stand for. We need to come together and move forward to, to create conditions that are frankly more democratic. To think that young people on the west side of Chicago or Harlem or Compton have to grow up in profoundly unsafe terrain, right? Is uh, when the kids in Darien, Connecticut, and you know, et cetera, can grow up in a safe environment to have that disparity in simple safety, 
right? Never mind income or anything else. Like that is undemocratic and we are hobbling our own talent. I totally agree with you. I'm a trained economist by my core. Oh, no and, kidding. Yeah, so you and, know. And, and the idea of economy is the maximization of all resources to the, you know, to the best of the local or macro environment. And to think that there are large communities who aren't reaching their full potential holds us back as a country. Well, There's and when you say like 100%, when you say not reaching their own potential, actually prohibited from any sort of upward mobility, any sort of upward success. And, you know, the big white mansion is, is symbolic of that, right? It is. And the lack of attention to the conditions of trauma that these young people have to face where PTSD is double that of a combat veteran for, for people living in these underserved neighborhoods, that's staggering, right? And now there's new research that that sort of untreated trauma is passed down genetically. Whoa, 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 whoa. How can we permit this to continue and in fact, it's so pernicious, the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And I think, Gary, one of the things that blew me away as somebody who lives in the world of privilege was when their mothers started talking about sharecropping, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting piece of the film. Right, one generation away from slavery in yep. intergenerational trauma that Arche reminded me trauma that the next generation has to pay for, right? So the trauma his mother suffered, whether it was seeing her uncle hung on a tree, mm -hmm. whether, it, and it was abused by her father, right? Like all of these things, that trauma she visited on him. And he's like, I need to stop this cycle because the next generation pays for that kind of trauma that is inflicted by the greater we. Right. Yeah. So, and by the way, the greater we ends up bearing a brunt of the burden as well. It's not good for anyone. No, it's no. a compounding negative expense that just gets pushed forward and expands. Yeah. And it's complicated, obviously, because there's so many layers to it and so many inputs. It's access to capital. It's access to nutrition. It's access to education. It's access to oh, safety okay. and housing. It's so many, so many, so many, so many. And um Quite honestly, Mary, I don't want to rain on the sad parade, but there is so much good and hope. There is so much yes and we in this movie. Right. And that's what I appreciated so much about it is because for our listeners, again, a most beautiful thing. It's available on this pretty slick Peacock um, app, which I was, you know, I've already downloaded it a couple months ago because I got caught into something else I was streaming. And then in researching you in advance of the show, I was like, oh, cool, this thing's on Peacock. And then I also know it's available, um, you said, on Amazon as well. Yep, and it, just, uh, just as of last month, we're now on Amazon Prime. Right. And, and all of your other films, if you go to 50eggs.com, I believe you can see your whole collection of films. And each, I mean, at the very least, go through the trailers. I mean, there's so much fun. <laughs> I mean, that's what I, how I started. I just went trailer by trailer by trailer and... I was like, oh, I got to watch that one. I got to watch that one. Um, well, you know, sometimes history repeats itself because I did a film in 2002 called um, Apple Pie. And in Apple Pie, we had a number of famous athletes and their moms. And Grant Hill, 
was in apple pie and he, fast forward i don't know 16 years later and here we are working together on this grant and i have been just honestly tied at the hip working on this project and um how lucky am i right to have someone of his thoughtfulness and kindness and thought leadership working on this project and, and amazingly when the film started to get reviewed I think it was the Hollywood Reporter, right? That there was this huge incoming interest from all avenues of Hollywood around a scripted uh, feature film. And so we're right in the middle of that. So more Arche will be coming at you, you know, in a different modality, but it's That's wonderful. So, so exciting because Arche is such a dynamic force for good. And he is a force in a way that is appeals to our better angels. Right. And and not like, as you said, the sad parade. He's like, let's roll up our fucking sleeves and get get to work, people. Right. And, yeah. and we're going to. And, and by the way, Mary, there is a sad parade and, and there's parts of this film that, quite frankly, are hard to watch. And Without so and so if you're viewing this and thinking about viewing this with kids, my recommendation, depending on the age of the kids, would be to watch it first on your own and, and feel it out if it's appropriate relative to who the audience is. I mean, my kids are all in their 20s, and so this is like a must-see for them. But um, if they were, you know, 11 and 12 and 13, I'd want to watch it with them for sure and and have deep, meaningful conversations with them about what they're seeing and, and how they should be thinking about it. So I think depending on the age, it's a guided view or it's a solo view, and I just kind of want to get that out there and not to take anything away from it. It is a magnificent piece of work. I would also tell you, that um, between the narration and the music and the visuals, I mean, it's it's awesome. Thank you, you know? my friend. I yeah. really appreciate that. And and um, compared you know, to a hero for Daisy, which is your first film, which is so lo-fi, right? <laughs> I mean, the production value. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I don't mean to diminish the importance of the story of Hero for Daisy. It's a remarkable story about a young a group of young women at Yale of all places. Right. Yale, the, the height and level of academia where all things of justice should appear and every level of equality should be apparent for everyone completely eliminates access to women for equipment and, and services for their team. Right. 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 And exactly. so, well, yeah, we shot that, right. That was 2000. That was our very first film, right. 20 right. years ago. And, 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 shot and by the way, you can film. tell you're, you're learning. At, on with uh, a hero for Daisy, you were learning, but I'll tell you what, when you get to film 10, a most beautiful thing in 2020, you know, the chops are down and, and it's, it's an impressive, it's an impressive piece of work. So, well, you know, it's an, it's an athletic venture, right? This is a marathon and you start out and you're good. Right. And, uh, and you want to get better and better and better and better and better and better. Right. And so right. the evolution, I think of the craft of our work, it's very much, an, you know, like the same thing, like an athletic pursuit, right? How do you get better? Where could you be better? You know, where are you flawed? Where do you need help? Where do you need another team member? Right. right. Uh, that fill in the team, all that kind of stuff. Right. So there's a question that we ask all our guests, or I ask all our guests, and it goes like this, Mary, you yourself have been a competitor. Today, I can tell you are a competitor. There is grit and drive in what you do and the way you approach your work. There's no doubt about it. Having played in a lot of games and competed in a lot of tournaments, what did you gain more from the wins or your losses? Losses. 
And, and I wish that? I had learned that lesson earlier, right? The gift of failure cannot be underrated. And it was actually my first film that reawakened me to this because I was the kind of athlete, I get distracted, where she, where she, where she, where she, what, instead of where was I, right? being in the present. And sometimes I'd be fast, then I'd be dog slow. And oh, I got beat and I have to work or the waves were too high and she's stronger, right? Like I had an excuse for every time I lost a race. And my good friend, Chris Ernst, who became the topic, you know, the protagonist in A Hero for Daisy. I remember I got cut from the US team and she's like, you're back early. <laughs> And I'm like, yep. And she's like, suit up. We're going to go do some stadiums. We're going to throw up. It'll be really fun, right? Like, let's get let's get the show on the road. And I said, you know, Chrissy, I, I don't know if I'm talented enough to make the Olympic team. And and I think I might clear out my locker. Like, this is, this. I've been banging my head, right, against this wall. I cut again. And I remember she said, you know, Mary, you are so much more talented. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, Gary, you are so much more talented than you believe, Right great mentorship. And then why the hell do you make an excuse every time you lose? And remember, like, it was like a slap across the face. Mm. I'm like, I don't make, oh, shit, I make excuses all the time. And you hear it. It's part of like, yeah, we got a job by the ref or a bad caller, right? Like you, this is endemic to our society around, no, 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 no. I need to take responsibility how am I going to fix my weaknesses? So what if the waves are rough, right? Too bad. What am I going to do to surmount that? And that day forward, I was like, Chris, oh my God, you're right. And I need to approach this without a safety net of excuses. I have to go for it and go for it, honestly, whatever that means and do whatever it takes. And that day forward, I stopped going to parties, right? I stopped training with the men because it was fun, right? I was like, I am going to do everything in my power to not have an excuse. And whatever I hate, whatever I suck at, I need to do that, whether it was running stadiums, right? And so as an athlete, you want to focus on the stuff that you're the worst at, right? That's the only way you're going to improve. And I feel like so, so that question about failure, had I not failed, I don't know that I truly would have ever achieved. And, and so in that one year alone, I was two years before the games, I went from being ranked like, you know, 13th maybe in the country to all of a sudden I'm like pretty consistently third, third, sometimes fourth. And when you're third or fourth, uh, they pretty much have to, <laughs> have to take you to the gate, right? Like, like that's a huge difference. And I credit the mentorship of Chris Ernst for like reawakening and educating me around that. But also for me, as somebody who wasn't an athlete, never known as an athlete in high school, for me to have that validation was like important personally, but but not going to the Olympics was much more than that. It was all about how do you concentrate? How do you rise up when the chips are down? How do you commit to something, right? Mm. With no safety net of excuses. That for me was a very scary thing. I cared a lot of people thought, and I'm like, all right, we have to go for this. And I think all those lessons have made me a better person, better mother, better filmmaker, more empathetic, right? All of those things that you learn, those lessons of failure that truly develop character. And what a great place to do it while playing games as kids together on a team, you know, learning how to win with, win with humility, but lose with dignity. 
Right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah. So I encourage anybody listening to this podcast to go to 50eggs.com, to flip through the trailers, to take the time to invest in yourself and watch your most beautiful thing. Because for me, it was helpful. It recalibrated um, my own internal spirit about persistence and overcoming difficulties. And it was just very, not only was the movie fun to watch, but it was also good for my soul. And you can never get enough of that. So um, I I can't thank you enough for for joining us today. And Thank you, Gary. And thank you for that sentiment. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank thank you for having me on and for the conversation and really thoughtful topics that we covered today. Yeah. And we'd love to have you back. And Mary, um, in advance of your next film, don't be afraid to call us first. We want the scoop. 100% next time. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks so much. (laughs) All right, Gary. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks. If you see my brother, tell him I said hi. I will. Talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to On The Whistle. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at onthewhistle.com. 